But, you know, I've always looked at what we do in restaurants as it's a profession, it's not just a job. There's something like dirty about tipping. It's like removing that aspect of it and saying like, this is what dinner costs. This is what you pay. We're going to take care of our staff. This is Copper and Heat, the podcast exploring the unspoken rules and traditions of restaurant kitchens. I'm Katie Osuna. This season, we've been exploring the complicated financial forces and systems in place that owners, chefs, and cooks have to learn to navigate, often while operating on these razor-thin profit margins. And there's few systems as complicated and contentious as tipping. So, you know, we had to do an episode on the topic. Actually, it's such a big deal that we're devoting two whole episodes to it. In this first part, I want to start with a question that has been in the back of my mind since I got my first cooking job back in college. Why don't the cooks see more of the tip money? For me, this question intensified during my time working at the fine dining restaurant Manresa in Los Gatos. Back in 2016, I worked for a month in the front of house as a food runner at Manresa, in between my stage and when I got my official job as a cook. I didn't realize how much more money I made in the front, and at the time it didn't really matter. I just wanted to be in the kitchen doing the job I was trained for. But it opened a whole new world of things to me. As a front-of-the-house food runner, I was making 27% more while working less hours. And then I learned that the captains, the servers in charge of a section of the dining room, were making two to three times as much as the cooks, all because of tips. And it was kind of infuriating. Turns out, I wasn't the only one. This old school mentality of the kitchen's going to get treated like shit. These are some of the people I worked with at Manresa. And they're going to work the hardest and they're going to work the longest hours and they're going to get paid the least. And we're going to have these people who work in the front of the house that are going to come in later and, you know, not work as many hours. and They're going to get paid significantly more. You know, the average salary for somebody... Uh, in the kitchen in California is like forty or fifty thousand a year, and the average captain's salary. So the person who is, you know, in charge of a section of tables at the restaurant, they make anywhere from a hundred thousand to one hundred sixty thousand dollars a year. How little value is the hard work that the kitchen puts in compared to the front of the house where? I'm not saying that they don't deserve that money, but they don't deserve it more than the kitchen does. And I'm not t- I'm, I'm not about to fight that whole front of house back of house fight. Like I'm not saying that at all. Like I've met a lot of professional front of house people and whatever, but the inequality is ridiculous. If diners were more aware of how restaurants worked, then everything can shift a little more. If there was like <laughs> in an ideal world, there'd be like your total, then there would be back of the house tip, front of the house tip, and then your total. So that everyone would like, then there would be no discrepancy. Like, oh, well, the food was fucking awesome. So I'm going to give the cook a little tip. 
we had a lot of these kinds of conversations when we were talking for our last season because it's something that everybody felt really passionate about. It all just felt really unfair, and it seemed like it was one of those things that was just the way it is. So coming from my career as a cook, I started to do some digging, asking, why do we have this huge wage disparity between front and back? And as I mentioned earlier, why does the front get to pocket all the money? Turns out that's the completely wrong question to ask, which we'll talk a little bit more about later. But that initial question led me down a much longer rabbit hole than I was ready for. So let's start at the beginning with how the whole system of tipping came to be. Tipping actually originated in feudal Europe. This is Saru. My name is Saru Jayaraman. I am a professor at UC Berkeley in the Goldman School of Public Policy and founder and president of an organization called One Fair Wage and also the founder of the Restaurant Opportunity Centers United. It was something that aristocrats and nobles gave to lower level servants, but always on top of a wage. So the notion of tipping came to the States in the 1850s when rich Americans started traveling to Europe and coming back and trying to show off that they knew the rules of Europe. And the idea was actually initially resoundingly rejected in the United States. There was a massive populist movement against tipping in the late 1800s. The two major reasons that they said we should not have tipping in the United States is that they said we're a democracy, we're not feudal society, there shouldn't be this notion of patronage or subservience. But also they said you should get good service regardless of how much you can afford to tip. And also we think employers should pay their workers, not customers. And that notion, that populist movement spread to Europe. The labor movement picked it up in the early 1900s and got rid of tipping in much of Europe, rejecting it as a vestige of feudalism. Whereas in the States, um, the timing didn't work out so well. (laughs) The arrival of tipping and that anti-tipping movement coincided with emancipation of slavery. And at emancipation, the restaurant lobby and one other industry, the Pullman Train Company, Uh, which was luxury trains crossing the country that had hired lots of former slaves, black men, and were bussers, essentially porters on these trains. So both these male porters on trains and then mostly black women servers in restaurants Uh, At emancipation, these two lobbies wanted to hire these two groups of black people and pay them nothing and have them live entirely on tips. And that was a total mutation of the original notion of tipping, which was always intended to be an extra or bonus on top of a wage. The notion of tips as wage replacement really is a direct legacy of slavery in this country. This traditional tipping system has come under a lot of scrutiny recently, with a lot of restaurants trying out different systems, some legal and some definitely not, to try to make things a little more fair for front of house and back of house. Service charges, living wage surcharges, tip pooling, gratuity included. As I read more about these restaurants, it sounded like the revolution was coming and finally someone was going to get close to solving so many problems. Well, because it's only a pay cut for them. This is my friend Lee. He lives and works in Portland, Oregon. But in the summer of 2019, before we really started producing this season, he and I got into a conversation about the traditional tipping system and some of the alternatives. Yeah, I, th- I think it's just one of the one of those things where maybe they, the revolution comes and they they lose jobs or lose money, <laughs> like because 
like yeah, I don't know. I I don't think I don't think you can make up for what they make in tips and still run a successful restaurant if you're paying servers what they're getting paid in wages plus tips now. It's like there's not that much meat on the bones of a restaurant. Lee just also happened to work at one of the restaurants that had done an interesting tipping experiment, and I had been following their story. It's called Le Pigeon. Le Pigeon is one of the fine dining staples of Portland. It's been around for over a decade and is this funky, innovative, French-inspired food with things like foie gras and wagyu and truffles on both a la carte and tasting menus. Plus, they have an extensive wine list. The owners recently opened a more casual sister restaurant called Canard in 2018. In 2016, they had completely eliminated tipping at Le Pigeon and their more casual sister restaurant at the time, Little Bird, which is now closed. The restaurants are owned by a silent partner and these two. I'm Gabriel Rucker. My name is Andy Forking. I'm the chef owner of Le Pigeon and Canard. I'm the owner and wine person at Le Pigeon and Canard. Gabriel was there from the very beginning, before Le Pigeon was even called that. It was called Colleen's, and he was hired as a chef with very little experience. People are kind of paying attention to what we're doing. I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'm just kind of barreling forward. And he was just making food on the fly every day. They decided to change the name to Le Pigeon after a tattoo he had on his arm. Always dangerous to to name something after the tattoo that you have, because if it crashes and burns, you got the tattoo forever. A year later, they were garnering all sorts of attention locally, but nationally as well, and they really needed a GM, someone to take Le Pigeon to the next level. There is a gentleman in New York City sitting at his desk, Kraft, I believe, thinking about moving to Portland, looking at Craigslist. And in came Andy. I grew up in New York and never really thought I'd move, and then met my wife, Lauren, and we got married, and she kind of put the bug in my ear that it is possible to live other places. Um, and we finally sort of, we were thinking about different places and decided on Portland after some visits and stuff. And then I was out here for the weekend interviewing with, um, a guy that has a few restaurants in town. And then Sunday night, you know, I was just asking around and someone said, oh, I heard this place, Pigeon's really good. And we went and we had this great meal. And then the next day I was at my desk looking at Craigslist and there was a posting and I was like, well, you know, it's good to have a backup, you know, so applied there. So, yeah, I'm this, like, young kid with, like, I had never, like, even cooked. I This is, like, my third cooking job, maybe my fourth cooking job. And I'm so freaking excited that we're getting, like, in my mind, which, which it proves to be true, but, like, this, like, hot shot, like, manager sommelier from New York, and I'm just so stoked. No idea what he looks like. And it was, like, waiting, like, it was almost like a blind date because... I remember, oh, he's going to show up. And it was like, we. oh, man, is, is he going to find out? Like, is it is the truth going to be revealed? And I still feel that way to this day sometimes, okay? The truth was sort of revealed when, you know, I came in and, um, like, my training was, we had, like, a meeting where the whole staff was there and it was like, hello. And then I had, like, one shift where I Grant, quote, unquote, trained me to host or serve. You know, and this was like, you know, they would, put the tickets in and go up to the table and go like, beef cheeks? Who had the beef cheeks? And I was like, okay, this is a mess. But it was it was a fun mess. I think we went through like the first like, you know, six to 12 months where he was afraid I was going to like wise up and leave. And I was afraid he was going to think I was really boring and just tell me to leave. Um, <laughs> so 
13 years later, now they're both part owners in the restaurant, and between Andy's management and Gabe's cooking, they've garnered a whole lot of attention. And how I heard about them is through this tipping experiment they decided to do in 2016. It's not like we came up with this idea, but when, you know, really started to get talked about a lot, Andrew Tarlov and Brooklyn and, and Danny Meyer and those restaurants, you know, and, and to be fair, I'm kind of like tied into those because I worked at Gramercy Tavern in some capacity from when I was like 15 to 24 on and off. So, you know, I know those people. And so all that stuff kind of like came both through the news and through like the back end, what was working and what wasn't. But, you know, I've always looked at what we do in restaurants as it's a profession. It's not just a job. There's something like dirty about tipping. It's like removing that aspect of it and saying like, this is what dinner costs. This is what you pay. We're going to take care of our staff. Yeah, part of it was like, you know, hopefully we can pay the back of house a little more. But like, we weren't foolish in the idea of we couldn't all of a sudden have the servers getting paid significantly less than they were because you, you're competing for the best employees. You know, but the idea is if we could just like get the back a little bit more, you know, and maybe if the front was going to get a little bit less, you know, we could compensate that for a more kind of respectful world in which they worked. And that was really kind of our hope. At first, it seemed like everything was going really well. They didn't receive any complaints from guests or servers. But it didn't last for more than a year. We'll get into why after the break. In the spring of 2019, I helped open a few different restaurants within the span of a couple months. You know, the usual process of recipe testing, ordering, frantically working with contractors to get the kitchen built out, and then the dreaded hiring process. We were always up against deadlines and understaffed, and I didn't know how we were going to pull it off. Paired is how we pulled it off. Paired is an app where you, as a kitchen manager or chef, post shifts that you need people for, and Paired fills those shifts with vetted, qualified restaurant professionals. They match people with similar experiences or backgrounds to make sure you get someone who can handle the work you need done. At one of the restaurants I helped open, we were using three paired pros a night to help us get through opening, and many of them were so great we ended up hiring them full-time. Paired is a great tool to give you peace of mind, whether for a, my dishwasher just called out Friday night, or a weekly shift you've had a hard time hiring for. I would highly recommend giving it a try. To get started with Paired and save 30% off your first shift, visit Paired.com slash copper or use the offer code copper during booking. That's P-A-R-E-D dot com slash copper. So the tipping experiment at Le Pigeon seemed to be going really well. Several servers told Andy they were really happy with the change. A couple of the servers, you know, mentioned to me that they really liked not having the, the whole, like, how much are you worth kind of thing. And frankly, the people that told me that were the, were the women that worked for us, the servers. Le Pigeon is in Oregon, which is one of the seven states in the U.S. that doesn't have what's called a tip credit. In 43 states, the federal minimum wage for tipped workers is $2.13, as long as employers make sure tips will bring the employee to the full minimum wage. In the 43 states with the sub-minimum wage laws, sexual harassment in restaurants is rampant. 
In the seven states with a normal minimum wage and tips on top of that, sexual harassment still happens, but far less frequently. Since women are 52% of the restaurant workforce and 66% of tipped workers, this is an issue that Saru from One Fair Wage and Restaurant Opportunity Center United has done a lot of research about. What we learned through first hearing from workers and then doing lots of research with those workers is that when you are paid a 2 or 3 or $4 wage, your wage is so low it goes entirely to taxes. You're living completely off your tips. You have to put up with whatever the customer does to you, however they touch you or treat you or talk to you, because the customer is always right. The customer pays your bills, not your employer. And on top of that, the research showed that managers are telling most women in the industry, dress more sexy, show more cleavage, wear tighter clothing in order to make more money in tips. Keep in mind, 40% of these women are single moms, they're feeding their kids on these tips, and that means they've got to put up with it. Um, You know, we did an event a few months ago with Alexandria Carcio-Cortez, the Congress member, and she was a tipped worker before she became a Congress member. And at the event, she said, you know, maybe... Maybe at the first of the month or the second of the month, you can slap away the guy who tries to grab you. But by the middle of the month and certainly getting closer to the end of the month, you're going to have to put up with whatever comes your way because that's how you're paying your rent. It's not your boss paying you a wage. It's you tolerating whatever they do to you to get those tips. Um, and that's just not a stable or safe way to live. I mean, can't tell you the number I don't think anyone would be surprised to hear that it's not just women in the front of house that are sexually harassed. This culture permeates the rest of the restaurant. I wrote a book a couple of years ago, and one of the stories I told was a, a woman chef who, um, her executive chef, who was a white man, he was married, but he regularly dated the servers and he would essentially give them better or worse shifts based on their willingness to go out with him, date him, have sex with him. And so since he saw all the women in the front as his playthings, he saw her, who was one of the few women in the kitchen, as his plaything as well. And he would regularly touch her, grab her, harass her. She was paid far less than the male pastry chef. And this woman said, I know it's because he sees these servers in the front and he thinks he can do whatever he wants with them, that he does the same to me. So the notion of women are objects, you know, is codified through the subminimum wage system and carries over to all women in the kitchen and the restaurant industry, you know, as a whole. It's not only gender discrimination that comes up in tipping, but racial as well. On average, white servers make $7.06 an hour in tips, while servers of color will only make $5.47 an hour. Just as troubling, Sarah says, is that one in two Americans has worked in the restaurant industry at some point, usually as a first job. This first experience in the workplace colors how they view workplace harassment in their careers. I can't tell you the number of women we've heard from who have moved on to other professions and say, I've been sexually harassed recently, and we heard this from Congress members and... CEOs and lawyers, organizers, I've been sexually harassed in my current profession and I did nothing about it because it was never as bad as it was when I was a young woman working in restaurants. I even heard from a Berkeley professor, a law professor who said, at one point we took a group of young women who had been harassed in the restaurant industry to see a judge. The judge was a woman. And the judge said, well, 
They were harassed, but it was not nearly as bad as what I experienced as a young woman working in restaurants. <laughs> and so what this has done is it's everybody's first experience is it set the standard for what's normal and acceptable and anything like, you know, in the realm of what people consider to be mild, uh, it's seen as not that bad because everybody experiences it as part of their first job. It, it's like the hazing ritual that half of America goes through and then thinks for the rest of their life, well, it's okay because we all went through it. So Andy and Gabriel's hope was that eliminating tipping altogether would get rid of this idea that they're not monkeys dancing, you know, for a $20 bill. They're professionals, you know. These men and women are fucking professionals. They were hoping that they could change this culture, not just for the front of house, but for the cooks as well. I mean, the back of the house, they're here because they want to cook the food in this kitchen. And hey, it's super, that was super easy for me. So, hey guys, I suppose this is my, this was literally like my, my, it was like, hey guys, we're gonna be making some changes. We're gonna be getting rid of tips. You guys are all getting a raise. I sat them down each, hey, this is what, it, different, a little different for you for how long you've been here. This is what's going on. You're not gonna see the tip line on your paycheck anymore. And we're gonna be taking care of you. Okay, chef, sounds good. But it all came down to the numbers. They had gotten rid of tipping at Le Pigeon first to test the waters a bit. At Le Pigeon, what we were really looking to do was, we wanted to be purists about it. We just raised the prices, took the tip line off. We kind of felt like, A, we had to be honest that not every person has a good experience and sometimes there's mistakes in the kitchen and sometimes the service is bad. You know, I'd like to say we, we're always perfect, but mistakes happen and it seemed disingenuous you know, if someone has a bad experience, then they have to, like, see this line that says service. <laughs> so what we found at Le Pigeon was that, you know, we raised prices about 20%. Our sales went up about 20%. So it worked, right? It worked here. At Little Bird, their more casual bistro-style place, it was different. You know, as soon as we put those new prices on the menu and posted the menus, we started to see fewer covers. The people that, like, just look online at your menu, which everybody does it, you know, and then like, oh, that looks kind of expensive. We had one big change in what we did over there. And then we saw covers go down. And so like where the sales here ticked up 20% year to year, you know, over there it was seven to eight. So it wasn't really covering what it needed to cover. So they stopped. This is great. Okay. This is my friend Lee again from the very beginning of the episode. Well, because it, it's only a pay cut for them. So back in the summer of 2019, Lee and I were talking about our second season, and I mentioned how bummed I was that Le Pigeon had decided to end their tipping experiment. How shitty was that? Lee had been a weekend dishwasher there for about three years and had started in the middle of the experiment when they were still tipless. And Lee told me something that kind of surprised me. Our front of house manager pulled me aside and was like, yeah, so uh, we're going back to accepting tips because it wasn't working out. You can expect to probably make more money. Like we had to do leave the dish pit when we switched because he was taking home so much less money. So like this is a raise for you probably. And she was right. <laughs> okay, I made $5 an hour more once we reenacted tipping than I did before we, before when I joined the restaurant when we weren't accepting tips. 
I probably shouldn't have been surprised by this, but I was. In my brain, I had built up gratuity-included restaurants to be this silver bullet, the way we were going to combat wage discrepancy between front of house and back of house. It was better for everybody. Turns out, shocker, of course it's not that easy. The question I had started out with, why does this wage discrepancy between front of house and back of house exist? There were a lot of wrong assumptions with that question that were just starting to surface with the Lepigen story. So what was the right question to be asking? Lee left this image in my head that helped to shift how I was thinking about the entire issue. Okay. Call all of the money available to the people who touch a restaurant in like any sort of service capacity. Call that a pie. Is the pie cut evenly now? How would you see it cut differently? Who like who has to make less money basically so cooks can get paid more? I think that's the the meat of the question. But finding the answer to that question is much more complicated than I could have imagined because who has access to that pie and who is setting the rules? Well, it's not just a question of front of house versus back of house. It's a lot more political with lobbyists, laws, and something called the NRA. No, not the one you hear about in conversations about guns. We're talking about the National Restaurant Association. Because not all restaurants are like Man Ray's and La Pigeon, small businesses with high price tags. Most food service workers are employed by really big companies, and the NRA is right in their pocket. Turns out, they have a lot more to do with why and how we tip than I thought. We'll explore that in our next episode. We're a little over halfway through the season, so I'd love to hear what you're thinking. What do you think about the topics we've covered so far? And as we look towards season three, what's another big theme you'd like us to tackle? Send us some of your thoughts at hello at copperandheat.com. If you haven't already done it, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. Then you can keep up with all of the new episode releases throughout the season. We still have a few more. Also, if you can please leave us a five-star review, that would help us a ton. Overhead, the second season of Copper and Heat is produced by me, Katie Osuna, and Ricardo Osuna. Our story editor is Rachel Palmer. Head on over to Twitter or Instagram and find us at Copper and Heat or check out our website, copperandheat.com. All the music you hear is produced by us under the name Gamma Gardens. Check out other tracks on Instagram and SoundCloud. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.